0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I, I wonder if you've ever bitten on a deal that's too good to be true. You ever been offered something and you've said to yourself, wait a second, this is a little too good to be true here, this deal that's being offered. Uh, maybe, um, I think for example of the infamous uh, scam that is the timeshare presentation, right? Just come and hang out with us for two hours and we'll give you like two tickets to Disney World or something like that. Right? And then six hours later, you're pulling your hair out because they won't let you leave and they won't give you the tickets and they're just pressuring you to buy a timeshare in Orlando and you uh, leave hungry and exhausted and angry and ruining the day you ever made a bid uh, to get a timeshare down in Florida. It's too good to be true, right? It's too good to be true. I'm thinking of the advertisements from like the 70s, 80s, and 90s for the Columbia House Record Club. Anybody members of the of the Columbia House record? Oh, we have members in the house. They're very good. Well, you signed up and you got your eleven CDs for ninety nine cents. But then you also got signed up for two CDs a month in the mail at full price every month after that. So by the time you're done with your one penny CDs, you're paying six hundred dollars a year for music you may not actually want to listen to. So maybe those cheap CDs were too good to be true. Many are the poor, um, uh, surprised, and uh, in trouble teenager when their parents find out that they signed up for a program like that, uh, thinking they could get the uh, CDs for cheap. I'm thinking of the one time I got an email from a Nigerian prince who promised to pay me tens of thousands of dollars if I could just help him out in a pinch. I'm thinking of the automobile warranty from the dealership that. You purchased and it covered every part of the car except the part of the car that broke. I'm thinking of the, um, the, the, the the multi-level marketing scheme that said, oh, I've got a job for you. You can work from home, it'll be great. I'm thinking of the Ginsu knives that could cut boots on the TV infomercial, but then you got them and a week later they couldn't cut warm butter. I'm thinking of this one time a guy in the Bible named Abram at age 75, left his family and his home and his ancient Near East 401k package to follow God into a land that he didn't know, tempted and motivated by the promises of blessings, including the blessings of a biological heir to his estate. And our reading from Genesis 15 today gets to the heart of this question, right? What is a promise of God worth? What is a promise from God worth? Are we talking, is is this in like the too-good-to-be-true range, like like Ginsu knives and timeshare presentations? Is that what we're talking about when God makes a promise? Or is a promise from God actually worth leaving your family and your 401k and your security behind to chase after it? How long uh, is Abram going to have to wait? That's the question of our reading today, before he gets the fulfillment of the promise that God gave him. And in fact, this morning, Abram is going to start to show signs of cracking. He's been following God for a number of years. He left his home. He left his family. He left his security to go to a new land and new people. Um, And he's going to actually accuse God of being like a timeshare salesman. He's going to say to God, you know what? You promised me this thing and it isn't here yet. What is the deal? That's what's happening in our reading from Genesis 15 today. And my intent by the end of our reading, by the end of the sermon, is that you're going to understand a promise from God is not the same thing as a ginsu knife. It is not the same thing as a multi-level marketing scheme. Um, it's in a category all of its own. That's what I hope to convince you of this morning. In Genesis 15, uh, in our series we've been going through, we've been walking through the book of Genesis piece by piece. And by Genesis 15, like God and Abraham, have, Abram have been through a lot together. Uh, God offered Abraham unnumbered blessings if he would leave his family and social security, financial safety net behind and follow him to a new land. And Abram accepted the deal. Um, There were so many blessings involved, and God is sitting there saying to Abram, hey, I've got this massive good deal for you. Will you follow me? And Abram says, yes. So Abram travels to this new promised land, but there's a famine, so he actually leaves it, goes south to Egypt, And he gets in trouble in Egypt, so he leaves Egypt and comes back up into this promised land. Um, He has his companion companion nephew, Lot, who had been traveling with him. And he was kind of keeping Lot, as um, his companion nephew, as a backup plan in case God's promise didn't come through. But at this point in the story, he has broken ties with Lot. Lot has gone on and left and started to do his own thing. But then an invading army came into the region and captured Lot and took all of his things. And so Abram raises his own army to fight back and Abram wins, he wins the spoils of war. And so all things considered, he's actually setting into this new land, settling into this new relationship with God pretty nicely. Because we've seen evidence of these blessings come to Abram. Some parts of this original promise, the original blessing that God gave Abram, they're coming true. Right? Abram is, is certainly blessed beyond um, anything that everyone in the ancient Near East have, would likely see. Uh, and what I mean by that is he's got gold, he's got livestock, he's got servants, he's got political clout. Um, from an ancient Near East perspective, Abram is doing really, really well materially. Um, his friends are blessed too that the people who came to his aid to fight against the the army in the previous chapter of Genesis 14, um, when they joined in and became friends with Abram on that military conquest, they got to share in the spoils of war too. So Abram's friends, that's one of God's promises, that the uh, the people who are friends with Abram are going to get blessed. But you know what? Abram's starting to develop a little bit of an enemy with a guy who's the king of Sodom. And things aren't going to end well for Sodom, and that's going to come up in Genesis 19. But at this point, you can see God is sort of keeping the king of Sodom at bay. And so of all these blessings that God has promised to Abraham, a lot of them seem to be coming true. But this has been going on for a little while now, and Abram is getting even older. He was about 75 when he left his family to follow God. And there's one part of God's promise that hasn't yet manifested itself. There there is one part. And, And in fact, it may be the most interesting and most important part of God's promise to Abraham. The thing that drew Abraham's eye more than blessings and blessings and blessings and blessings, because one of the promises that God made Abraham is that you will have an heir. You will have a son. You will have a biological child that will be a conduit through which I'm going to build an entire nation. God says to Abram, you have no children right now, but if you follow me, you will have so many great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great- grandchildren that one day they're going to need to form a government to to keep track of everyone. And at this point, as Abram is getting older, as Abram is continuing on and he's fighting battles and rescuing his nephew and traveling the ancient world, that particular promise had yet to come true. So much of Abram's life up until this point has revolved around the difficulties of infertility. He was living with his extended family in Turkey back in Genesis chapter 13, 12. He was living with his extended family there because he didn't have anyone to take care of his old age. His relationship with his nephew, Lot, was primarily because he wanted to say, well, I don't have a biological heir, so at least I can do is give it to my brother's son. Um, but at this point, um, he's cut ties with Lot, he's cut ties with family, and so so at this point, Abram is walking this tightrope about trusting God's promises and the safety that has been removed underneath. And so after this war of the nine kings that we talked about last week, God comes to check in on Abraham in our reading today. And he says to him, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. You'll have a massive reward in store if you trust me. And Abram's Abram's response is very bold um, because he raises a finger to God and he he tells God off. He says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram is pointing out to God the obvious. Hey God, where is the biological child you promised me? Remember that part? And as it stands, this Eliezer of Damascus guy, we know nothing about Eliezer of Damascus. It's like the one time he gets mentioned in the Bible. He's very likely the number one servant, uh, one of the high servants, the, the senior servants working under Abram. And Abram's like, look, right now, If I die, it's all going to this guy. It's like, come on, God, you made a promise. What's up? Talk to me here. Without an heir, Abram says to God, your promise is a lie. Bold words for any man, any person, any human to speak to the heavens, but especially one that we've identified in our previous sermons as one as sort of having questionable moral things. And God's response to Abram is gracious. It's very gracious. It's evening at this point, and God says, "Look towards the heavens, number the stars in the sky, or at least try to if you can. That's how many your offspring are going to be. It's going to come. It's going to come." And the passage says, "Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness." And that's an important verse, and we're going to come back to it a little bit in just a little bit. And the two continue to banter. And Abram says, come on, like, give me an insight. Tell me what's going to happen. And, and God says, you know, it's going to happen. Trust me, I promise. And um, God says to Abram, okay, let me put this in the plainest and starkest terms possible. Uh, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, bring me a ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And here's the thing. Abram knew exactly what God was doing. Because Abram goes and he gets those animals. And what does he do? He starts to sacrifice them. In a pretty bloody way, frankly, right? He's, not only does he, he kill them, but he, he cuts them in half. What, what's going on here? What, like, there's no animal sacrifice. Like, didn't say sacrifice the animals. God said, just bring the animals. And Abram's like, doo to do," and he starts slaughtering animals left and right. Here's what's happening. In the ancient world, um, there was a particular ritual for making a legal bargain that involved the sacrifice of animals. You know how in our own day and age we have this phrase, like we, we cut a deal or we seal a deal? In the ancient world they had a phrase they called it cutting a covenant. And, and what, they, that, what that meant was uh, you would undergo this ritual where you would bring in these sacrifices and you get some wickedness. Uh, w- wickedness, huh, witnesses is what I meant to say. You'd bring in these witnesses. And, and what would happen is the two parties coming together in agreement, they would you know sacrifice the animals. and and they would cut the animal in half, from from head to to toe. So you had like two animals, two halves of an animal. What they would do is they would dig a little trench between the two animals, and all of the blood would run into this trench between the two animals. We actually have records of this outside the Bible happening. And what would happen is, is once you had this big trench with blood that had drained into it, what would happen is that the two parties in this covenant, this, this covenant relationship, this sort of legally binding action, would take off their sandals and they would walk barefoot in the blood of the trench. And they would, were saying, in essence, what they were, were, they were communicating to each other, this is how they sealed the deal, is that should I go back on any part of my promise that I make to you in front of all of these witnesses... May I end up as these animals to my left and to my right. May I be uh, slaughtered as these animals if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. And the other person would come in and do the same thing. They'd walk barefoot through the bloody trench. I mean, gross, gross stuff, but it's very visceral, right? And you walk through this little trench and, and this person would say, I too agree to do my part of the bargain. And if I do not, for whatever reason, if I do not fulfill my part of the bargain, may I end up as these animals. I've used this analogy before at Epiphany, but it's, it's something worth remembering, right? On the schoolyard playground, when two little kiddos want to make a promise to each other, what's the rhyme that they say to each other, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You all said it when you were young, I imagine. I said it when I was young. And part of what they're doing is they're saying, and, and look, it's a little vivid for, for children, but children have vivid imaginations, is if I go back on my promise, I consent to having my eye poked out with needles. And and it's gross, but it gets the point across that we're taking this promise piece so seriously that we were willing to undergo bodily harm and even death if we go back on our word. It's the same way in cutting a covenant, right? We might say the ritual is something like in the ancient world, cross my heart, hope to die, slice me down from nose to thigh. It's pretty clever, huh? I made that up myself. It wasn't in the commentaries. And so Abram, he knows this ceremony. When God says, bring the animals, Abram says, I know exactly what's happening. And so Abram goes and he takes the animal and cuts him in half and he makes the ditch and he's fighting all the birds away, you know, because the birds are trying to get the animals. He's like, no birds, you can't. Get out of your vultures, and everything like that. And as the evening approaches and a great darkness falls, God appears to Abram in a dream and says this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God does give Abram a gift. He pulls back the curtain on the future just a little bit. and He says, here's how this is going to pan out. 400 years from now, this place is going to be yours. It's going to be for your family. And Abram, you, uh, you are going to die in a good old age. You will die in peace frustrating part of all that, of course, is that that's not the question Abraham had. <laughs> He's like, where is my son? And, and God says, um, well, uh, you know what? Uh, your servants will be back here in 400 years, and you're going to die in your nice old age. It's like, that's not the answer to the question, but 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 here's the thing. Something remarkable happens after God makes that declaration. After Abram, telling Abraham about the future, uh, Abraham has what, what the, the, the fancy theologian types call this a theophany, a, an actual vision of the divine. And God shows up in a smoking pot and fire. And you'll remember that in the book of Exodus, right, when when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, how does God show up? In a fire and smoke. God shows up as smoke and fire. What does God do? He passes through the animals, He walks in between the animals. It's remarkable. Because what God has said to this man, what the heavens have said, what the creator of the universe back in Genesis chapter one, the God who created heaven and earth, what he has done to Abram is to say this. Abram, you're gonna get a child. You will have a biological heir. Cross my heart, hope to die. Cut me down from nose to thigh. It's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable that the holy God, the creator of the universe, the power that is by which no greater power can be conceived, that God would use such this brutal, earthy, literal ceremony to communicate his intention with Abram. It's striking. God can't be cut in half. God, you know, he's undivisible, and there's spirit and power and immortality. And so to witness Abram in this ceremony, uh, seeing this commitment level of commitment from God, it's helpful for him and it's helpful for us. Right, Because the, the, the contemporary retelling of this story is this, that God's lawyer calls up Abram and says, hey, I'm calling on behalf of God, and um, he's got something he wants to give you. Um, you're going to get a bunch of blessings, and that's it. Um, I, we just need you to come in and help fill out the paperwork on this. And it's like Abram says, okay. And he shows up to the office and the papers are all out on the big lawyer table. And there's a notary public there to make sure that everything is on the up and up and the lawyer's there, and there's pens. And, and in that story, God walks into the room and he smiles at Abram. And he sits there and he signs the papers and he says, you know what? Um, this is really great. I'm really glad we're doing this. I just want to bless you. And I'm signing the paperwork here. And if you need anything, just call me. And the paperwork's all signed, and and God's sitting at the table with the lawyers, and he's checking out, and the lawyer says, everything's good to go, and the notary stamps everything and says everything's good to go, and God shakes Abram's hand and goes back to God's business. That is the contemporary retelling of what we just witnessed with the animals cutting in half. God is now, um, you know, we would say now it's an ink and pen that God is going to provide Abram with an heir. Although back then they would say God has provided his promise in blood. Too good to be true, right? The God of the universe signing on the dotted line because that's exactly what happens in our reading today. God is now on the hook for an heir, a land, and a nation. God is on the hook. A couple of observations about our reading today. Notice that God's word to Abram has a lot to do with timing because God is willing to tell Abram his future, that he's gonna die peacefully in old age. Um, And he's willing to tell them the great future about how um, the events of the book of Exodus, right? The the people are going to go down in Egypt and they're going to be there for about 400 years and then they're going to come back. And, um, you know, I said earlier, you know, that's that's great, but it's also kind of frustrating because that's not the question that's on Abram's heart. The question is, when do I get a son and God says, don't worry, you're going to die in old age. It's like, that's not the question. And to me, as someone who wrestles with, um, you know, following God and faithfulness and all of that, It's so frustrating to see a God who gives opaque answers to my, uh, or oblique answers to my direct questions. It's like, when is Jesus going to come back and fix a broken world and all the heartbreak and misery I see around me? And the answer is like, yeah, you should see the world that's coming, Brian. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. I'm like, that's not the question. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know how or what. I wanted to know when. And Abram has questions now, and God has answers for like 20 and 400 years ahead. And so if that's a pattern in your own life where you have questions about the now and God is consistently not giving you answers, well, you know, join the club, right? That doesn't always happen that way. Um, We know the details of our resurrected life. We know that we're going to have communion with God. We know that suffering is going to end. We know that all the bad things in this life are going to end, that life eternal is ours. God told us this much, and it should be comforting, and it is good. Um, But our desire to know other things, like what's the deal with suffering? When will this pandemic end? When can we sing in church again? How does one solve the problem of racism? these may be left as mysteries to us apart from the grace of God. That's okay. Because long-term. That we know the end. We know the end of the story. And our job is to sort of um, figure out what happens to get there. It's first observation. Second observation. Notice how Abram doesn't walk through the trench, right? Notice that Abram doesn't walk through the trench. In the story, right, like in the original ancient world, you had two people come together, and there was the trench, and it's filled with blood, and um, you have both parties walk back and forth through the, through the trench. Because the, one person says, hey, I'm going to make a promise, and here's my side of the bargain, I promise to keep it. And the other person says, yeah, me too, I've got my side, and I'm going to keep it. But in this version of that ancient lawyer room ceremony, um, Abram doesn't do anything. He's a bystander at best. He's a witness. And the significance of Abram's sort of non-involvement in this walking through the animals is huge because what it means is the blessings aren't dependent on Abram's participation. And I've used this analogy, and it's worth repeating too, that um, we all have covenants in our lives like this, right? If you have a car payment, what's the covenant? The dealership says, I'll give you a car, and we say, I will pay you for the car, in monthly installments. And um, that is a two-way street. And if they take the car away, then we get our money back, and if we don't pay the money, they take the car back. Same thing with a home loan, right? You know, we work with the bank and it's like, okay, you give me the home and I'll give you money for 30 years at a fixed rate or whatever. And like, those are two-person deals, but there is a whole class of legal um, documentation where it's just one person. It's just one person who does the legal deal. And the the, the most easily understandable and accessible one of these is the idea of a will. That when I um, put together a will, it doesn't matter um, who else is involved because it's just me. I sign on the dotted line, it's all my action and anybody else involved, they're not participants, they're just beneficiaries, right? They get the benefits of my decision but they don't have to do anything. And so, if on the way home from church today, should Beth and I, Lord forbid, a die in a fiery car crash, my seven-month-old Tom is going to get everything, right? There may be some restrictions on what that looks like because, you know, he's seven and a half months old, uh, but he, he, will, he will get it all. He doesn't have to do anything. He is the beneficiary of my good gift simply because I love him and um, that's what I want to have happen. And that's part of what we read today in our uh, understanding of Abram, is that Abram is not a participant. He is a beneficiary. Um, Everything that goes on in this legal transaction is one way. From the heavens to the earth, from God to Abram. That's all it is. So his job is simply to sit back, to trust, and to receive. That's all he does. Third observation. I'm going to come back to this verse that Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then we'll close. I said earlier um, that this is an important verse. I, un- I undersold that. Um, if you ask me for my personal opinion, this is undoubtedly the most important verse in the entirety of the book of Genesis. It is, in my opinion, the most important verse in the entirety of the entire Old Testament. And it's like a top 10 for most important verses in the Bible. This verse... That Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness, is a foundational verse for everything that a Christian believes. Because St. Paul, when he goes uh, to write letters to the church in Rome, and he goes to write letters to the church in Galatia, these letters that are part of our New Testament, Paul, in both of these letters, looks back at this particular verse and says, Look, we thought to, to interact with God, it meant you had to be good. We thought it meant to interact with God. You had to be a moral, good, upstanding person. But it turns out that our relationship with God is not based on our morality or our ethics or our moral fortitude because Abraham is none of those things. And yet he believed God and took God at his word. And God counted it to him as righteousness. That's it. Belief. Believing that God is a God who keeps his promises. That's the great epiphany that St. Paul has. He says, look, our relationship with God is not about obeying the rules. It's not about being good. The question is, is that when God extends to you a promise, do you look at it and say, yes? Or do you say, no, you know what? It's too good to be true. There's gotta be a catch. No thank you. That's our relationship with God as Christians. It's the same relationship of God that Abraham has because God's gonna make us promises. And um, when God makes us promises, Our only question is whether or not we take God at his word and believe him or we say no thanks and move on. Our text is telling us that a morally questionable man with very serious flaws and failures is counted by God as righteous. God says, I can work with that. So this golden thread of our reading today is that a man of deeply questionable moral character challenges God on his promise. A man of deeply questionable moral character who pimped out his wife two chapters ago, who um, takes God at his word, but also brings along his nephew as a backup plan. A guy who is not a paragon of virtue or godly living by any stretch, comes to God and says, God, you made me a promise, what the heck? And after some hesitation and questioning and back and forth from God, the man believes God's promise again. And God looks at the man's belief and decides to treat him and welcome him as one without the deeply questionable moral character. Let me simplify that even more. A bad man believes God's promises. And because he believes God's promises, God treats him like a good man. That's what our reading tells us today that a bad man believes God's promises, and so God treats him as a good man. Cannot emphasize the importance of that enough, because it is the foundation of how God saves people. God alone walks through the bloody trench of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God alone makes promises to fickle, feckless, self-absorbed heaven haters as if they were um, willing And if they are willing to believe the promise, then God treats them as if they are holy and unspoiled members of his very own household. In Jesus Christ, my friends, we find that um, everything, everything that happens uh, in the relationship with Abraham and God is our story too. Everything that happened today in this reading about promises, everything that happened in today's reading about the assurance of heaven that everything's going to be okay, even the um, the going so far as to put the promise under the promise of blood, under the security of blood. These are all the things that we have from God as well. And it's not just Abraham, right? For every living human that exists, God extends a promise, forgiveness of sins, life eternal, companionship, guidance, a cosmic reset button on suffering and injustice. And this earthly slog will be um, followed by heavenly rest. It's all there in the promise extended to us. So, what is our role? Here? We, like Abraham, are simply beneficiaries. We are beneficiaries of a new covenant, not secured by the blood of animal sacrifice, but by the sacrifice of God Himself. And like Abram, all we have to do is take God at His word, and we will find ourselves to be to inheritors. I got the feeling oh. when i woke, I feel it, ow, in my soul. <clears throat> Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.